Good morning, City Lifers. Good morning, visitors. Uh, so grateful that all of you are here. Grateful for this other opportunity to preach God's Word. And uh, as of the taping now of this sermon, uh, there's a high chance of rain on Sunday. So who knows? Maybe we're all here. It's the first time in a while that we may potentially all be here online. And so just good morning. Uh, we love you. We love doing church in what, whichever way we can in this season. Our commitment to Jesus and doing that as a body will not change depending on how we have to do it. And so, if you're new, hit that I'm new button here in our notes section. We want to connect with you. We want to do this life together, exploring Jesus with uh, everyone who walks in our doors. And so today is our last sermon, actually, in our sermon series of the Beatitudes. And I wanted to start off here. I wanted to read from a primary document written by a Christian who was going through persecution, who was eventually martyred for her faith in Christ. This primary document is called The Martyrdom of St. Perpetua and Felicitas. And it was written, uh, they're not exactly sure, but it was written either in two, 202 or 203. And um, let's read the commitment that this young woman had for her Christ has said this, while we, are still, uh, while we were still under arrest, she said, my father out of love for me was trying to persuade me to shake my resolution. Father, I said, do you see this vase here, for example, or water pot or whatever? I like how even back in the year 202 or 203, the word whatever was alive and well. Her dad said, yes, I do, said he. And I told him, could it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. Well, so too I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. And I just love, I love reading that. Very few things speak to my heart than from like these primary documents back when the church was just still a baby, figuring it out, growing, learning, being persecuted. I, I, I love it. I love this lady, a 22-year-old, who in that document said, a brand new mother. I love how she knew that belonging to Jesus was her descriptor, that belonging to Jesus and following him and not letting go of him was the central and most important thing about who she was. Being a follower of Christ was what, who she was. And she was willing to stand up even to her dad, who out of love was trying to tell her, let him go, let go of Jesus. And she was like, no, I won't. Being a Christian, that's who I am. That is what I do. And in our last week of the Beatitudes sermon series, I, I felt it really fitting for us to start there. This list of this Christian, of a follower of Christ that Jesus points to and says, you know, these are my people. This is who loves me. This is who comes after me with all of what they have. This is who is blessed, who is deeply happy. And in our last sermon series, we're not introducing any new ideas. There's nothing really new here and today. There's, there's one thing, that the natural progression of the Beatitudes leads to rejoicing, to being happy, to being blessed, 
in a profound way, it leads to rejoicing. This whole sermon series has been around like, Jesus, like, who do you say we should be? Give us your definitions of what a blessed person is. Like, Lord, shape me. Take my character and shape me. Take the most intimate, the most inner parts of who I am and produce someone who loves you, who goes after you. And then as we talked in the last two weeks, like who even will suffer for you because you are good, because you are worth it. Ryan, back in week three of the sermon series, said like, for us to be people who lived our blessed lives, not our best lives. A people who unequivocally say, you know what, that I am deeply satisfied, even in the daily routine of life. I am satisfied because I have Jesus. I am profoundly happy that I have all of my needs met and that I'm in a, a vibrant relationship with Jesus. That has been the hope of the Beatitudes this whole time. And so, for one more verse in our Beatitudes sermon series, 2,000 years ago, Jesus went up on a hillside, and he was so full of love, so full of compassion, so full of truth, that he stood in front of his own disciples, a whole group of people, and then also the billions of followers of his throughout history since that moment. And he preached to all of us, saying, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, you are so blessed. You are so satisfied. You are so full of life. When you start to grasp the whole magnitude of the Beatitudes, and you allow God to come and shape you in your character, in your inner heart, and how that will produce this rejoicing in your life that you would have never imagined. That would have been impossible without the Beatitudes and a sprinkling of suffering. And so let us pray, and then we'll read God's Word, and then we'll see what in the world God, Jesus was doing when He finished off the Beatitudes by talking about rejoicing in heaven. And so uh, please pray with me. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for our people. Lord, I, I thank you for the, the Beatitudes and what you've done. I thank you that, man, we have not even scratched the surface of the depth and of the weight of what you've shared with us. But Lord, I, I pray that it is what you're doing that we will live out the Beatitudes now that we would spend the rest of our lives going deeper and letting you change our character and our conduct, Lord. Lord, uh, Holy Spirit, I invite you into the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word and the living out of your word. Lord, we need to do all of it empowered by you and in your lead. Lord, um, yeah, we love you. We want to worship you this morning. Please be a part of everything that we do. And so I pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen, church. So today, for the last time, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. God's word says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's start off today talking about from suffering to rejoicing. So this is week three where we focus at least a bit of our time on suffering. And uh, naturally, I want to apologize for that, but I will be unapologetic for us today. Because the whole point of what we've been talking about in suffering is that it, in God's hands, it produces something in us. So for, for our last word on suffering in the Beatitudes is to remind us, to bring this back up, that when we live our lives with God, a good God, the God of the Bible, a God who promises to heal, who is the only healer, who is the one who can redeem evil, when suffering is paired with this God, it can produce blessing. You know, apart from this healing God, suffering in the hands of anyone else is just suffering. But at the hands of God and in his wisdom and in his love for us, paired together, suffering in his hand, in his watch, produces weight in our hearts and in our souls and in our beings. Two weeks ago, we introduced this idea, right? Uh, that suffering can bring us closer to God's glory, his, his weight, like the weightier things of life. And this has everything to do with the most common word in the Old Testament for glory, which is the Hebrew word kavod. And, and the word kavod talks about his glory. Like when, when we translate it, we usually use the word glory. But literally, the way that kavod uh, talks about this, lays this out, teach this, is that kavod literally means weight. Like an actual weight. Like when we talked about The Great Divorce, my favorite book, uh, about how when the people went to from hell to heaven, they were like ghosts, right? Even the leaves were realer, heavier than what they were at. And it's this idea that stems out of the word kavod, which means God's glory. That when we're in God's glory, like there's this sense of heavy, good heaviness, like a real meaningfulness, meaningfulness. That God's glory is this weight that makes things real. You know, nerdy nugget break. Uh, when Samuel in the Old Testament dies, he has the, one of the weirdest deaths in all of Scripture. It says that he was sitting in a chair and his own weight, his own kavod was so large, the successes of life, like this place that he got into in his old age where he thought he like forgot about serving and he was thinking more of himself and his own weight, his own success. He got so big, he fell off a chair and broke his neck. His own kavod, his own weight crush his neck. And that's the picture of, that Kavod shows us, is that glory equals weight. And, okay, and nerdy nugget. 
And what it means when we're talking about suffering is that suffering is able to unlock God's glory and God's kavod, God's meaningfulness. When we live for righteousness sake, when we suffer on Jesus's account, it creates this weight in us and that it, it allows us to see God at work as healer, as redeemer, as the powerful one, as our coming king, as the king of everything. And this suffering moves us from the ephemeral to the tangible, right? It gives us something tangible to see, like, oh, I saw God at work. He was so incredible. Like, God, he was so loving. He was so compassionate. I saw this uh, with my own eyes. I felt this with my own heart. It moves God from the ephemeral, right, like out there and, and slight and momentary, and it makes him real. It grounds him in our hearts and in our lives, and we can tell people about him. That's why so many people like avoid suffering, because you can only think about the bad things that happen in suffering, and rightfully so, but you miss out when you avoid suffering in your life. You miss out in God's glory, the weightiness of who he is, that he's able to defeat anything that comes his way. That God, when he redeems and when he heals, we have this tangible thing to rejoice in. It's like shout to everyone, God did this for me. God was able to do X for me. Now, over the years, I've shared about how I personally went through a deliverance experience. The first time I ever saw deliverance, like, uh, the casting out of demons or out of somebody was when it was happening to me. The first time I saw it, it was I was the subject. And I, I'll share the story again. Or if you want to ask me, approach me, like we'll have a conversation. Set aside every horror movie thing that you've ever seen about exorcism. Like, no, deliverance is this beautiful thing that God does. And, and I'll tell you the story, but the point isn't the story. It's what happened afterwards. Like uh, after my deliverance experience, that night and for days and weeks after that, all I could do was rejoice when I thought about God. You know, later on down the line, I thought about questions like, God, like, why did that happen? Or like, why did I lose so many years to this? Or like, Lord, why when I was a kid did this happen? Like, I answered those questions afterwards, but for that time being, all I could do was rejoice because I saw God firsthand redeem all of the suffering, years of suffering, a childhood of suffering. And I'm like, Lord, you are so good. All I can do is rejoice and say how good you were to me. All I could do is tell people about what you did for me. And that only came after suffering. Suffering in God's hands creates this profundity in our lives. It points to something that's real and meaningful and that God is all-powerful and all-loving and all-graceful. That's why I read Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41, and like I get, I get where the disciples were. Acts 5, verse 40 to 41 says this, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, I read that, and I think any, any non-Christian who reads that is like, man, this is a cult. This is weird. Or like, oh, these people are kind of twisted. Right? And I also read this and like, think about Christians who have never like, really suffered, who have never been so devoted that they will suffer loss for the righteousness sake, who read this and be like, oh, man, like these, 
no, like these are gluttons for punishment or like, oh, this is so weird or like, no, actually, I don't want anything to do with this. But the whole point here is like, think about these men who lived and walked with Jesus for years, who were sad, who lost their savior and their friend on the cross, who saw him resurrected and what he did in their lives and then received the Holy Spirit. And you think about like, man, I am counted worthy enough to suffer for Christ. Like, I am counted worthy enough to identify with Jesus in suffering. Like, yeah, I'll take that. If that's a part of the equation, I'll step into it. I'll step into persecution when it comes because it means I'm on track with my Savior, right? It means that I can know Him in the good times and in the bad, and it means that I'm devoted to Him and I won't turn my back on Him. Like One of the central questions that God asked me to consider when I started to preach was like, Pedro, will you look like a fool for me? Pedro, will you suck at this for a while? Like, Pedro, will you like week after week feel like you did a horrible job, but you still want to go at it because you have this in your heart? It's like, will you look like a fool for me? It's like, yeah, I'm like, I'll look like a fool for you. I'll go through whatever I need to to be with you, Lord. Lord in your hands, I know that it will bring me joy. And so I say yes. John Stott, my best friend in the whole wide world, he writes this. He writes, how did Jesus expect his disciples to react under persecution? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. We are not to retaliate like an unbeliever, nor to sulk like a child, nor to lick our wounds in self-pity like a dog, nor just to grin and bear it like a stoic, still less to pretend we enjoy it like a masochist. What then? We are to rejoice as a Christian should rejoice and even to leap for joy. Thanks, John Stott. Like, that's incredible. I love that. As beatific people, we are not called to retaliate. We are not called to sulk and self-pity, right? We're not supposed to be licking our wounds all the time. Woe is me. We're not called to be stoics, which means that we are so unattached with our, with our emotions, uh, detached from our feelings. We're not called to be masochists. We've specifically talked about that one and enjoy suffering to point to ourselves. No, what the Beatitudes lead towards is that even through suffering, it leads to joy and rejoicing. It leads to blessing, profound satisfaction joy indescribable, that we get to identify with Christ in suffering, to experience his healing and his redemption. Yeah, Jesus, we'll sign up for that. To better talk about what rejoicing is, I looked it up and most of the definition of it is pretty expected, right? What you would probably expect. But my eye was drawn to this one. It said, to be well and to thrive. I like that. That even when we are losing everything around us, even when we're losing all of our worldly possessions, all of everything that we've worked for, when we are just losing for the sake of righteousness, we can stand in the presence of God himself and say, you know what? The joy that is before me still outweighs everything that I'm losing. Jesus, I trust you that if I am losing these things, you will give it back to me or you will replace it with something better. The joy before me outweighs what I think I'm losing. You will redeem it. You will stop evil. I trust you, Lord. 
I'll be well in this, and I'll even thrive, even in the midst of persecution, because Jesus, you are with me. And then so we move from that, and let's talk about the promise here that has been in the promise of the whole Beatitudes is the promise of heaven. I want to set up this section by reading from Romans 8, verses 16 and 18. God's Word says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is the kicker. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I love that. Paul, I love that. Like the, the present suffering does not compare to the joy, to the glory that is before us. And I've just been thinking about like the promise throughout the whole Beatitudes. The very first Beatitude, the promise, was that we would get the kingdom of heaven. The last Beatitude started with the promise of the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus today even literally points out that we, the reward, our reward in heaven is great. And I'm like, Lord, I just want to spend some time thinking about what heaven is then. Like, I wonder how many of us have thought about heaven for a bit, for more than just like, ooh, that's the good place at the end of all this, right? I was like, ooh, okay, that's where I'm going to be fine. I was like, I don't understand what life there is going to be like, but okay, that's what I'm told to want, so I'll want heaven. And I, and I think about all of these religions that have some form of heaven or have like God waiting for us in heaven. And I even think about the universalists who say, you know what, God is so good that everyone will go to heaven. Like, it doesn't matter what you did or what you believed or what you confess. Uh, everyone's going to make it into heaven somehow. And I was just like why, like, why do so many of us want heaven? Why is heaven such this, like, special place it, for the Bible? Is it because it's, like, has these golden streets, right? Is it because there are, like, crowns and jewels and pretty things and, like, topaz and, uh, like, this river that shines like diamonds? I, I forget what the exact jewel there is, but like a, it's like it sounds pretty incredible but do we should be we want heaven because of what it's described to be or like what's so special about heaven what makes heaven heaven i think the whole beatitudes speak towards this the so heaven is this place with no more tears this perfect place not for everything that is there but for one thing because heaven is where god's presence dwells fully. Heaven is the place where God makes his home and he is unfiltered there, where he is in everything and everything is beautiful because he is there. That where God is, that's where heaven is. So that's made me think this week about all the, the moments, like the slight, momentary, really special moments in my life where I was like, looked around, I was like, God is here. God is doing something significant. There's a weight to this moment. Think about those times in your life. Think about the moments where like, man, I could live in this moment for the rest of my life. Or like, God, if it's never going to get better than this, then I, just take me right now because like, I, I want to be here forever. I want the rest of my life to be like this. And we start to like imagine, imagine that moment and times that multiply that by an eternity, by some infinite 
amount. And we're just like starting to glimpse how perfect heaven will be in his presence. That heaven isn't this thing that we earn, right? That it's not our reward because we've earned it. That heaven is going to be the people who like really who like earned it the most. No, it's not that. The heaven is this free promise for anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus to live in God's presence. To be able to be like Adam and Eve and, and go on a walk with him in the cool of the day. Like, we can't even imagine what that promise is. But Jesus puts it in the beginning of the Beatitudes. He puts it at the end of the Beatitudes. And all throughout is this promise, like, make heaven your character. Because heaven is where God lives. It's like, let God come and speak to us in a way that is so meaningful that even we find out that even in the struggle of this life, in the good moments and the bad, we've had a taste of heaven this whole time because God was with us. Because God was in my character, forming me, making me the person that he wants me to be, who he created me to be, who he knows that I can be, who I cannot be without his grace and his mercy. So that's why the promise of heaven to me comes out again for a third time. Because Jesus wants to live with us there. He wants the beatific person to be living in his presence even now as we are marching towards heaven. And so, like we said, this is our last sermon in the sermon series. Let's, let's end this where we began by taking a, a quick look at our first sermon in the series. And so let us end our series on the Beatitudes where we began it by looking at three essential things of what the Beatitudes calls us to remember and to live for. The first one that we said all those weeks ago was that the Beatitudes are given because Jesus wants us to be blessed. You know, this sermon series has been like, let's look at what Jesus says is a blessed, maturing, growing Christian life. Let's look at the heart of a believer who Jesus says, you know, this person really follows me. This person has weight to them. This person is going to experience me in this world. This person is going to be profoundly filled up, satisfied, like really happy. Not just the emotion of being happy, but will be in the state of being happy that even in the face of persecution, they will be so satisfied in me, in Jesus, that they won't need to go anywhere else. They will have what they really need. Ryan, in week two of this, said that Jesus is calling us to live our blessed life and not our best life, not what's most Instagram-worthy, but what is most aligned with what God says in the Bible and how Jesus lived his life. And so the Beatitudes ends with us still having this challenge of like saying, like, Lord, work in my character. Shape me to be the man and the woman that you've made us to be. Take my heart, take my conduct, take everything about me. Just like the lady that we started today off, like, like, I cannot be called anything else but a follower of you. That is who I really am. I am most filled, most satisfied when I'm in your presence. And when I'm doing the things that you've made me to do. The second thing from our first week, from our first sermon, was that the Beatitudes point us to the call of the church to be this counterculture. 
Now, starting in Israel, God formed their society, their culture, their people into being a counterculture, right? To show the world how life with God is a bit different, about like how, God would, how would it look like if God was in a country, in a society, shaping it and molding it and giving it its values. And that remains the call for the church. That we are like this counterculture, this peculiar people, these people who are different, who are called to be different, to live by different definitions and different values. Every week of the sermon series, there's been some element of saying like, well, this comes naturally to us, but like, this is what scripture says about this. Oh, like meekness to us, that's, you're a doormat. But what Jesus says is like, no, meek people are actually the strongest ones. Like that. And we're not called to be different just for the sake of being different, right? There's no rebellious part of our call to just be different for different sake. That we're not called to be different, to be annoying, right? The key word that I, I don't want to use one more time, but don't be that type of Christian. And we're not called to be different just so that we can point to ourselves and see like, huh, I'm one of the real ones. Like, yeah, I'm one of the 144,000, right? That some denominations are built on because they want to be that 144,000. It's like something to externally to just point to ourselves to swell up in pride. Say, I'm, a, I'm the chosen one. No, but that foundationally everything about our call to be different comes out of our need, our desire to be these jars of clay. To be these broken vessels that are broken, that are cracked, that are not beautiful, that are not perfect. Because when people ask us, okay, well then I see you and I see how real you are and I see that there's something different than you. What's different about you? You say, there's nothing different about me. The difference is all in Christ. He's made all the difference in my life. And so I point people back to him. We also remember how one of the key foundational verses of the whole Sermon on the Mount is when Jesus in chapter 6 says, don't be like them. Talking about the Pharisees, don't be these people who just serve me with their mouths and try and look holy in public. No, be different. Be realer. Be heavier. Be more meaningful. Live this out. Make this who you are, not just what you do. And then lastly, that the Beatitudes in our first week, we talked about the Beatitudes are not a shopping list. That every single Christian is to make up this whole list of the Beatitudes. That every single one of us are called to know and live out each of these Beatitudes. It's not a menu where we get to pick and choose the ones that we like or the ones that seem romantic or the ones that like, ooh, that one would be pretty cool. Like, no, it's not that. That none of the Beatitudes are optionals. That we can't opt out of certain parts of it. It's like, oh, look. I can even make myself do these couple of ones, but Lord, I'm not going to suffer for you. Lord, I'm, I, okay, I'll be meek in every other part of my life, but I won't be meek at work. It's like, oh, like, Lord, I, I, I'm done with mourning. I don't want to connect with my past. I don't want to connect with sin. I don't want to be emotionally healthy. Like, no, like, I'll just opt out of that one, and then you can, like, make me the other ones, too. It's like, no. That is just like this whole package of the heart of a believer who truly goes after Christ, even when it's scary. But that if we want to be these mature followers of Christ, we will give God free access into our character and say, like, Lord, mold me completely into who you want me to be, who you see me to be, who you're calling me to be. 
And then that also introduces an element of choice for us. You can limit the blessedness of your life here. You can say, like, God, nah, I'm not going to give you this one. And that's your choice. But it won't be this blessed life that God has envisioned for you, that God is actively working to make in your heart. And so all of this, everything, all of the, like, our ambitious desires around this sermon series, the ambitious nature of the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes should seem impossible to us because without Christ, None of it is possible without like time and without effort and without intentionality about like, Jesus, make me who you want me to be. None of this is possible. None of this happens. I cannot produce any of these qualities in my life. I cannot do anything. Left alone, I would turn on Christ when suffering came so fast. Like, I, who am I? I'm not anything special. I would leave him in a heartbeat, but I've had these tangible moments with him I just cannot turn my back on him. And so we end this whole series exactly where we began it. Our introductory what, metaphor, our introductory, uh, oh, the word escapes me. What we started this whole sermon series looking at was a 25-year-old lady named Leah Holland from Kentucky who days before the pandemic started, finally settled a two and a half year quest to see what she wanted tattooed on her body. And out of everything, all of the possibilities of the world that she could put on her body, she wrote this on her arm, courageously and radically refused to wear a mask. She was just so done with fake living. And that time, (laughs) life handed her such a mixed bag right there, literally 10 days before the pandemic got away got like closed things down in the state of Kentucky she wrote she wrote this on her body courageously and radically refused to wear a mask if that we would just be people who had the same sentiment with Jesus that we would say like Jesus I'm not going to wear a mask with you I'm going to be real and I want you to change the innermost parts of who I am I want you to change everything about me. Make me a beatific person. Like, mold me. Change me. Because I know, like, years down the line, you will have this change in you that you know only Christ could have done. You would have these set of experiences where, like, Lord, I saw you at work. You're tangible in my life. I've seen your goodness, your grace, and your power at work. If we also just be a commitment to be real with one another, with Christians in the church. I'll be real and vulnerable with you. And then with people who don't believe, like, I'll be real and vulnerable with you. There's nothing perfect about me. There's nothing good enough about me. The difference is Christ. The difference is what Christ produces in my heart. The difference is all to his glory, his fame, his name. And so, church, I pray that we ever more and more ever become beatific people who open ourselves up to the Lord and say, Lord, do with me what you will. If it's in your plan, even if it's suffering, I won't say no, but I'll hold on to you the whole time. And as a church, we'll point one another towards suffering and not away from it, because if Christ is in it, that's where we need to be. And so... We've done a lot in the sermon series, and there's still a lot more to come. But I pray that we 
better know what the Beatitudes speak into our hearts and into our lives and our dedication and devotion to Him. And that uh, yeah, we more live out the gospel call as a church and as individuals. So church, uh, I love you. I'll see you in prayer calls Monday, Wednesday, Friday. The link is on our website. Uh, we'll see each other in small groups and MCs. We never call them small groups. I don't know why I said that. Our men's and women's ministries are still up and running. Let's be these open, vulnerable people who live radically together to point one another to Christ wherever He may be in our lives. And so we love you, and uh, we'll see each other soon. Maybe if it's rained, if the service rained out, we'll have a Zoom call right after here. The link will be posted here if it's turned out to be a rainy day. But we love you, and we'll be together soon.